Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for CEO Exclusive, brought to you by Anona Enterprises. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to CEO Exclusive, where we get emerging trends from CEOs and their most trusted advisors. And I'm delighted to have on today's show, Reese Wilson, a partner at Nelson Mullins, who specializes in helping business owners sell their businesses, and Andy Mason at Peloton Capital Partners, um, an investment bank that also specializes in um, helping business owners sell their businesses. And they have worked together before. And so I'm delighted to have both of them come on the show and talk to us a little bit about trends in the market um, for the sale of businesses right now. And that's always where I start the show. And so I'm going to toss that question over to, to Andy. Andy, can you tell us a little bit about what are some trends in um, the sale of businesses that you think are really important for CEOs to know about right now? Sure, that'd be great. Um, overall, from a macro perspective, the M&A market continues to be exceptionally strong. It has been for many months. Um, we have a confluence of a lot of things going on in the market that are causing that, including kind of a, a growing, stable economy, um, relatively low interest rate environment, and kind of a pent-up demand to acquire businesses. Dur during the downturn, many strategic buyers as well as financial buyers are retrenched, and the activity was not as high. Business owners were not necessarily ready to sell, and now that we're emerging from that time period, companies' performance is improving. There's a significantly higher demand to acquire businesses. Hmm. And, and do you have a sense of how long the window is likely or predicted to last? I know that nobody has a crystal ball. Well, as long as this economic environment continues, I don't see the demand slacking. Uh, private equity firms continue to be well-funded. Strategic buyers continue to be very well-funded and aggressive. It all comes down to the economic environment and the interest rate environment. So I think as long as the economy is stable, it doesn't have to be growing exceptionally fast, but as long as it remains stable, and as long as interest rates remain low or as they rise, rise slowly, I think the M&A market will continue. Now, there's always the concern that everyone has that interest rates will uh, increase significantly next year, and that could significantly impact the M&A environment. Mm -hmm. One thing I would add, uh, Sweeney, to that is that the lending environment is is back to where it was maybe in 2006, 2007. Uh, I was just talking to a valuation guy uh, the other evening, and he said, you know, we're back at the happy times where it's now possible to borrow more money than you can ever pay back. <laughs> <laughs> is that really a happy time? It, it, uh, the, the problem is, is, as a private equity guy reminded me, you still have to pay it back if you mm -hmm. want the deal to work. So, so, but the point to that is, is that there's a ton of cash out there. And uh, it does depend on the buyers having the discipline to not overpay. Uh, and as long as they have that discipline, it means that they can get the kind of money they want. And from a private equity standpoint, I mean, Andy can tell you, the more money you can borrow at these kind of interest rates, the less equity you have to put in, the greater the return on the equity, and therefore the better right. the investment, uh, So yeah, which, yeah, which keeps it going. Right. Yeah, Reese is definitely correct on the lending markets. I think uh, after the downturn, the traditional banks retrenched considerably and stopped lending into these highly leveraged transactions. And for the most part, they're still there. I mean, there's a lot of scrutiny on their balance sheets by federal regulators and the like. But the alternative lenders, the business development companies and the like, have really emerged to fill that hole and are very, very aggressive in their lending activities right now. And are there particular particular sectors or industries that you're finding are particularly attractive? 
I mean, it seems to be pretty, pretty much across the board from what I'm seeing. I mean, in, in general, you're looking for areas that uh, have shown, and, and for companies that have shown strong growth, and particularly companies that sh- showed that they could grow through the recession and have come out of that recession strong and uh, pretty much have had to do that in order to show the three or four years of strong, continuous growth that, that buyers are looking for. But, um, I mean, I've, we're doing deals in a wide variety of industries right now. I don't know what you're seeing, Andy. Yeah, that's correct. And I think to Reese's point of companies that performed well during the town downturn and have been strong coming out of the downturn, some specific sectors, um, anything that's a, a business services oriented business that would help a company save money, uh, people were flocking to those types of services during the downturn to try to improve their operating performance, uh, particularly a, a technology enabled business service that's differentiated from the traditional staffing business of some type. Uh, the other area that we've seen a lot of growth and a lot of interest is in healthcare IT, uh, the ability to more effectively manage healthcare costs. Uh, another area is in just general technology. I think software has seen uh, a significant amount of interest and very high valuations in today's market. What do you have to say to the CEO who may not necessarily be the prettiest girl at the dance? So companies that are growing and that grew through the recession and kind of sailed through, of course, they're not going to have a problem selling. Everybody wants them. But what about people, you know, I imagine the vast majority of companies and CEOs who may have taken a hit and may have come out battle scarred. Well, I mean, the thing that I say to every business owner when they're thinking about doing anything with their business in terms of a sale is begin with the end in mind. You know, what is your goal from from doing a transaction? Uh, selling a business is not a goal. I mean, it is that is a means to a goal. So what is your ultimate goal? What do you want to achieve? So once you know what that is and whether what that whether that's to go to the beach, whether that's to save the world, whatever it is, whatever your ultimate goal is, selling your business is a means to get there, provide you with the money to be able to do that, maybe to go on to do the next thing you want to do. But you got to start with what is my target amount that I need to get? What is my magic number? What is my minimum sale price that I need to get? And then you need to know enough about the metrics of your business, which you can learn from talking to people like Andy. You can talk to your accountants. Sometimes some of your deal lawyers can help you figure out kind of what is the ballpark value of your company. And if you see that those two start to meet where you can hit that minimum sale price with the current performance, then it's time to start thinking about selling your business. Prior to that time, I mean, if you're not there yet, uh, you're, you're really not in a position to start looking at it. And I would say, you know, focus on those two things. You know, what is your minimum sale price? What are you trying to achieve from a sale? And then know what your company is worth. And when those two start coming together, that's when you need to talk to somebody like Andy. Right. Yeah, that's that's definitely the case. And, and unfortunately, sometimes it's, you know, those objectives are in conflict with the market. And um, a lot of times people say you don't sell when you want to, you sell when you can. And a lot of times businesses are not prepared when the market becomes hot like it is right now. And uh, it's a good time to sell your business, regardless of what type of business, even the slower growth, more mundane businesses um, are eminently sellable right now. And if business owners have not prepared to be in the market when the market is hot, then they may miss the window. Tell me, so as we think about this process and having business owners get ready, so I focus on on strategy. And so this thing about the metrics that will set a business owner up to be able to sell um, is of, I think, great interest to uh, myself and, and the CEOs who are listening. Andy, where can somebody who's thinking about, okay, how do I start to 
build a framework for the metrics that I need to manage against to be able to sell my business, whether or not it's now or two years from now or as I'm building my business, where do they go to get that kind of information and even begin to think about what the framework is in their industry? Because some industries look at revenue, some industries look at EBITDA, some, you know, and it depends a little bit on the recurring revenue and whether or not they have concentration in their business, concentration being, you know, being having one client that's 60% of their business, et cetera, et cetera. Where does a CEO go to get the framework for how to think about that? Well, there are uh, firms that will help a business owner over a period of time get ready for an exit. And um, there are various consulting firms, exit planning firms that can do that for you. Um, what most of those firms will do is help you with the basics. And most business owners know that um, customer concentration, as you mentioned, is bad. You need to have a diverse customer base. Um, revenue diversity is helpful, you know, where you have revenue from a lot of different channels as opposed to one. Um, management holes. You know, if you truly want to sell your business and leave or you want to deliver a business that's fully operational to a buyer, um, you may need to fill some holes on your team in order to do that. Um, you may not. Uh, you may need, need to be able to fill some holes in the team now just to be able to prepare and be able to operate in a sale process, such as a strong financial person. So those are some of the things that a exit planning firm would help you with. I think from a strategic perspective, uh, unfortunately, CEOs really need to do that groundwork themselves. And it's not that difficult. You look at your market. Uh, you look at who you compete with in your markets. Um, you try to figure out um, what would be valuable to the other people, the strategic buyers in your market. Now, a business owner is going to get a premium outlying valuation from a strategic buyer. And if that's your ultimate goal is to get the highest price for your business, it's likely to come from that type of a buyer. So you need to have something that the buyers in your market seek and would value. So whether it's something like access to your customer base, uh, access to a new geographic market, uh, access to a new product that they can put through their own distribution channels, something that would be accretive to their business above and beyond just your, your financial performance of your business. Mm. And in terms of, of look, you know, what, which of those metrics are most important in your industry and for your business, uh, there are a couple of things that every business owner ought to be doing. Number one is you need to go to those industry shows. I know they're a pain, but you got to go and you got to get to know the people in your industry and you've got to start tracking people in your industry. And if you, you'll find out in those shows and you'll find out from reading trade, trade mags, who's doing the buying in your industry. And uh, to, to Andy's point is you identify those strategic buyers. A strategic buyer is somebody who's in your business or in a very complimentary business, basically a competitor, and is going out and is buying up companies like yours or others. So figure out who those people are, track them, keep an eye on them, uh, talk to people you get to know in the industry, find out kind of what did they pay for that guy over there? What were the things they were looking at? The other thing you can do is go talk to people like Andy, go talk to investment bankers, they are the people that really have their fingers on the pulse of the market in terms of who are the buyers and what are the buyers looking for. And, and as you, to your point, it's going to be specific to your business and your industry. But in general, what people are looking for, as Andy indicated, you want to see a strong management team. You want to see consistent revenue growth, diversification of revenue. And the thing that, I, that just about everybody seems to look at is EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Profit, basically. Well, it's profit, but it's also cash flow. It's, and, uh, and really, EBITDA is a proxy for free cash flow. Mm -hmm. 
And and in the end, if you if you've stepped back from all of the oogly boogly here, and you talk about you know what is it that a buyer is out to get? A buyer is out to get as much cash flow as they can out of the acquisitions that they do and the businesses that they run, because that's what it's really all about is free cash flow. So EBITDA gives you an idea of what that free cash flow looks like. Uh, your accountant can help you figure out the basics on that. There are also adjustments to EBITDA that help move your EBITDA up usually that, again, somebody like Andy could help you figure out. But start tracking your EBITDA. Track it every month. Uh, Craig Kramer's God Rest His Soul, uh, his, one of his favorite uh, tools was, uh, and, and he was a, a known Vistage speaker and, and somebody who had what he called the CEO toolkit. And one of his best tools, I think, is the trailing 12-month EBITDA tracking. So you do a little chart, and every point on the chart is 12 months of EBITDA. And you run that chart, and you do it every month, and you follow it. And it wipes out all the seasonality in your business, all the excuses that people have as to why things didn't work out. And if that, if the, if that chart's going up, you're doing well. If it's going down, you got a problem. So, but just find out what those basic metrics are and start tracking them. It's amazing the difference it makes in a business when the, when the CEO is tracking EBITDA on a monthly basis. It creates a discipline in the business that is really needed if you want to try to maximize your value. Right. And, and in most cases, uh, size does create value. Mm-hmm. Not in all cases, but um, there are you know, smaller companies are less interesting to strategic buyers because they have less of a meaningful impact to that business once they acquire it. Um, smaller companies are more difficult to finance if it's a private equity sale. So as companies get bigger, you do see higher valuations. Now, one thing to definitely keep in mind is that um, revenues and profits are not always additive for strategic buyers. I mean, we've seen a lot What does of, that mean? Well, we've seen a, a lot of companies grow revenues for the sake of growing revenues, and they might have a few different disparate revenue lines that make the business bigger, but there's not a strategic buyer for the business that is really interested in all those revenue lines. They might like one piece of the business and not the others. And that might actually serve to diminish the value of the business when you go to sell it. Mm. So you may have done a lot of work to build a revenue line that nobody really wants. Right. Or it might be, you know, you might have three different buyers for your three different revenue lines, which is a very difficult task to pull off. Mm. And so I've noted here a bunch of different things. So you have, in terms of what, buyers are looking at, and I'd love for you guys to weigh in on what you think the relative importance of these is. So you have financial performance. Um, you didn't mention hard assets, but I imagine that that is probably of some importance to different different buyers. Um, business fundamentals, like whether or not they're in a growing market and that kind of thing, revenue diversity, customer diversity, and management. Which of those do you, do you think, um, you know, what is, what's the relative importance of those? I, I mean, financial performance is going to be the most important, but what's the relative importance of those? You know, to some extent, it's going to vary depending on the industry and where things are. I mean, if you're a a technology firm and you've got a hot new technology, uh, a lot of that's just going to depend on, you know, what is the potential market acceptance of that? What is the market size? And a buyer is going to look at a lot of different metrics there. Uh, I would say probably, you know, the vast majority of the folks listening to this are in kind of your basic businesses that that, uh, keep the economy running. And those are business services, as Andy indicated. It may be in staffing. It may be in healthcare. There are a lot of different areas. Um, and in general, uh, what, what you're going to be looking at there, hard assets are, uh, are not as important usually. 
Uh, it can be sometimes if you have what we call a financial buyer and they need uh, uh, leverage and they want to use that those assets as collateral. But in general, what folks are looking at are the things we talked about. It's a it's a strong growing revenue line, diverse lines of business, um, and it is a strong bottom line. Um, and again, you can get away without a bottom line if you're the next Facebook. But other than that, you, you pretty much need to be making money if you want somebody to pay money for your business. I mean, the, the thing for every owner to look at is to kind of step back and look at their business and say, if I were going to buy this business, is this a business I would want? And, and, if they, and if I were going to buy it, what are the things I'd want to fix? And if, if, I, if I, as the owner, step out tomorrow, what values are going to be there? And that's probably one of the biggest single problems we see in businesses, and Andy can add more to this, is, is a single owner where everything is tied to that owner. And that's one of the most important things that you've got to change. Right. And uh, in terms of valuation metrics, as Reese was saying, they definitely vary across industries. And uh, I've represented a couple software companies this year, and software companies trade on multiples of revenues, and profitability is almost irrelevant. Uh, because the buyers of those businesses are really looking for the customers. And they're going to take that software product, they're going to overlay it on their own system, and the the administrative structure, the management structure, the infrastructure that business required to run itself is most likely not going to be needed going forward. So uh, so as Reese was saying, the valuation metrics can vary pretty considerably from industry to industry. Mm-hmm. Is there a, a publicly available source where people can can go to start to look at their industry and what some of these valuation metrics might be? There, there are a lot of public sources um, for deal multiples. I think you really have to dig in to uh, and and potentially talk to an investment bank to kind of get a better feeling for what reality is. You see some pretty big multiples thrown around in the market. And unfortunately, those are averages, and averages are always misleading. You've got uh, billion-dollar uh, transactions for companies that are unprofitable. Well, that's going to definitely sway the EBITDA multiples that you see in the market. So the published mar- multiples you see are rarely reality. They're usually something less than that when you start looking at your business specifically. Um, so you, you really need to be careful about that. And then there's also the, uh, yeah, people for in the small business environment, they have friends that have owned businesses and friends that have sold businesses. Those can be a good gauge for value as well. Yeah, and I mean, to, to your point, um, investment bankers uh, are, are an excellent source of information on this. And the great news is, is that for the most part, they will sit down with you and talk to you about your business and talk to you about a potential value with no charge. I mean, that that's just part of their business development activity. So go take an investment banker to lunch. It's the best lunch investment you'll ever make and you'll get a a wealth of information. And again, the other thing to do is to be active in your industry, in your industry group. You'll hear more on the floor of one of those trade shows than than you'll pick up, you know, doing doing, uh, hours, days, months of research, uh, just in terms of kind of what are people looking for. And again, as Andy indicated, the thing that uh, the, the other reason to talk to an investment banker is is they'll talk to you about your business, not about industry averages or about, you know, could be, would be, might be. It's what do you have. And uh, they'll very quickly identify areas where you have weakness. And, uh, again, uh, revenue concentration is one of those that you see all the time. The other one is everything tied to the CEO, not having a strong management team. And so you'll get that feedback, and it's up to you as the owner to act on that feedback. And, uh, and by the way, you know, revenue diversification is hard. It is. <laughs> so It's one of the things that I work with my clients on. 
it, it's hard to do. Uh, but it, but at the same time, it's one of those things, again, if you're tracking it and you're focused on it and you let everybody know that you're focused on it, uh, get your sales team focused on it. Uh, make sure that your sales incentives are set up properly. I mean, that's, that's a mistake that a lot of companies make is they keep paying people commissions on old business instead of paying them commissions on new business. So, but again, you, you, what you got to do is you got to identify that weakness and then you have to put all of your energies into fixing that weakness. How long does it, it take to fix some of these things? Uh, so let's say that the CEO, um, business owner, founder, chief, you know, cook, bottle washer person, um, sees the light and says, okay, at some point, you know, I'm going to have to give up control and the business is going to have to run without me. Um, and now I need to put something in place for successorship or, you know, bolster my management team. How long do you, does that effort typically take in, in real life? Uh, well, again, it's probably hard to answer. It's going to be um, different across different businesses and different industries, but um, organic growth is often very difficult. As, uh, as Reese was commenting on, I think to diversify a revenue stream um, within an industry, you have to invest internally. You have to retain the people that are necessary to grow the business. You have to have the infrastructure in place to grow the business. It's often a faster path to getting to a point where you can sell your business through by, uh, by pursuing acquisitions, complementary acquisitions in your industry. And you have to be pretty careful there because you don't want something that is going to slow you down or something that's going to be problematic. Um, but in particularly in rapidly consolidating industries, uh, business owners need to, need, they need to pick a path. They either need to be a seller and sell into that market while it's hot, or they need to buy, be a buyer and they need to be acquiring companies to create a bigger entity that's going to be more interesting to buyers on the back end. So did I hear you say that you, you think that uh, acquisition is an easier path than organic growth. No, it's not easier; it's faster. Yeah, and um, so it, but it, it's it has different uh, different problems associated with it than organic growth does. In organic side, uh, you can make the wrong pick on a person that sets you back and have to change ch change horses and ultimately lose timing on an organic effort. An organic effort is going to take a lot longer. You're starting from scratch with either a new product, a new market, or a new customer base that you're targeting. So it's going to take a long time. Uh, and so depending on what your, what your timing is from an exit perspective, an M&A option might be better. Well, one thing that, uh, I mean, the biggest mistake that I see business owners make is they will not make the necessary investment in their management team. Uh, people are reluctant. They're, they're afraid of paying somebody a lot of money. Uh, for some reason, they, they just can't wrap their head around it, and they just can't wrap their head around the idea that if you hire the right person, the, the, the impact it can have on the business is many, many, many multiples of whatever you're paying them. And uh, particularly if you get the right kind of people uh, in your operational side, uh, the right kind of financial person, right kind of salespeople. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and really, you go through all your major areas, whether it's IT, I mean, whatever the major areas are in your business, you need to have leaders in each of those major areas. And you need to pay up and hire really good people, particularly in today's market, because the market is tightening for talent, and uh, you're going to have to pay up for good talent. But the impact of good talent, and I've seen it multiple times, is incredible, versus if you either don't hire talent or you try to go cheap, um, the, the net result is, is usually a big negative and, and holds companies back incredibly. So invest in the people, invest in the talent, because, in a, again, 
think about this. If you're the owner, you're going to sell. You're going to go to the beach. Who's going to run this business for the buyer? It better, you better have a really good management team in place to be able to do that if you want to have the transferable value that you want as the owner. Right, right. And the other, the other thing that holds back business owners is, is ownership itself. Um, the founder-owned, 100% owned business, uh, those owners tend to be very reticent about spreading around equity, sharing equity. Um, if you truly want to attract the best um, talent from a management perspective, you need to share equity in your business, give them the motivation to join your business and, and the ability to retain those people. And the other is uh, business owners are, are very hesitant to bring in a financial partner. A lot of times a capital partner, uh, not, a, not a sale, not a control partner, but some type of a equity provider to provide capital to support some type of a growth initiative uh, can be a positive. And having a third party voice on your board can be a positive. And a lot of business owners are very hesitant to, uh, to bring in that type of capital. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and often hesitant to bring in those kind of advisors. I mean, another thing that you can do uh, is to have a board of advisors. Uh, and, and that's, in some ways, a less expensive option. Uh, you know, Vistage is another wonderful way to, to, to achieve this. But to get somebody who is objective, uh, the, the owner, it's really hard for them to be objective. I mean, this is their baby. Uh, that their whole you know, blood, sweat, and tears are in this thing. They've invested their whole life in this thing. It's very hard for them to be objective about it. So you need to get advisors who can be objective and listen to your advisors and take their advice. And again, so many of these 100% owned businesses, the owner is just so reluctant to do anything to bring in really strong, talented people. To some extent, it's, you know, I don't really want to have somebody to... <laughs> <laughs> wants to do what they want to do. I want them to do what I want them to do. But you've got to give up that control because if you don't give the every owner has has a certain amount of span of control that they can actually do in a business. The way you multiply that is by hiring strong people. And as you hire that and you multiply that span of control, then you can grow your business. But uh, how many times have we seen these hundred percent owned businesses that are stuck somewhere in the ten to twenty million in revenue? And they just, or less, and they just can't move the, the dial because they won't bring the talent in needed to do it. What positions do you think are most important? I mean, you see, you talk about a leader in every area of the business, but is there one that you've seen tends to drive growth um, or, you know, break that logjam better than others? Uh, you know, Andy, I want to get your ideas on this too. But I mean, the, the, to me, the, the kind of two biggies are operations and sales. I mean, that, that's really where the rubber hits the road, at least from what I've seen. What about you, Andy? Now, I would agree with that in terms of, of growing the business. And then on the flip side, you have to have the infrastructure in place to support that growth. And that would be the other key positions that Reese mentioned, finance, IT, those types of support roles that you're going to need in place in order to, uh, to be able to handle that type of growth. You really need the whole team. And you just have to build the whole team. Obviously, you got to do it one person at a time. And if I were starting one person at a time, I'd probably either go sales or more likely operations. Right. Because if your operations aren't working properly, those additional sales aren't going to work because they're you're not going to be able to, to fulfill the orders. You're not going to be able to satisfy the, the customer needs. So you got to make sure. I mean, you got to build them simultaneously, and you have to invest. And again, that's an, uh, an investment a lot of owners don't want to make. But if you want the kind of return that we're talking about here, if you want to grow your business dramatically, you've got to invest, and it's invest in the people. What about fractional resources um, to help kind of ease the ease them into the the higher level talent? I think you can do that in areas such as IT and finance. 
you can bring in uh, people that aren't permanent employees to help you uh, build those areas. Um, when it comes to uh, sales and operations, uh, those people really need to be internal. So there's a, a perception, and I don't know if you may have some statistics on this, Andy, but um, most acquisitions, certainly if you read about them in the press and things like that, there's a perception that acquisitions don't work, right? That, you know, either because of culture or there's some failure in the acquisition and then, you know, then it seems like it's a faster path to growth, but then when you have a failed acquisition, it actually isn't a faster path to growth. So do you want to weigh in on you know, whether or not your personal experience in that and, you know, how, how you, how business owners who are listening to this say that acquisitions are a good idea, but a lot goes wrong in the execution. Right. The, uh, there is a perception that most acquisitions fail. And I think, um, and I think overall, it, it, a lot of it depends on what your definition of, of failing is. Um, the, from a financial perspective, uh, the private equity-backed deals in general have been successful if you over the long term and on average. Otherwise, that, that community of buyers would not have been able to raise the amount of capital they've got and continue to thrive and continue to buy businesses. So on the private equity side, you'd have to say on average, transactions are more successful than not. On the strategic side, it's a lot more difficult because often once a business is acquired, it disappears. It gets integrated into another company. And a lot of times the original business just completely disappears and that's perceived as a failure. Now, a lot of times the buyer uh, doesn't want the original business to continue as it did before. They want to fully integrate it and move it into their system, move it onto their platform, put it under their brand name, whatever that might be, and let the business go away. So it's hard to, to clarify or define whether or not that's an actual failure or not. I think one thing that's really changed in the market over the last 10 years, particularly on the strategic side, is... Strategic buyers used to be very aggressive um, to buy companies for size, to build revenues, and particularly publicly traded businesses who were trying to perform relative to market expectations. And those businesses were often kind of tangential to what they did and maybe not the perfect fit. <clears throat> so they were doing those acquisitions for size. And what's happened over the last several years is I think companies have become a lot more uh, focused on the right businesses. So and when you were going to sell a business, um, you know, 10 years ago, you might get 10, 15 bids from, a, from the strategic buyer universe. In today's environment, you'll get three or four. You get a smaller universe because those buyers are much more focused on exactly what they want. Their criteria have been refined considerably and their, their M&A uh, criteria are much tighter. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, acquisitions are hard. There's no doubt about it, uh, to, to do them successfully. And, and buying the business, it's important. The buyer can't overbuy. They can't overpay. And that's something that you sometimes see with folks uh, sometimes overpaying. If you overpay, it's going to be very hard to make the, the acquisition successful financially. Um, at the same time, the acquisition can be very successful from a strategic standpoint. And, uh, you know, here in Atlanta, we see a lot of buyers coming into the market, buying companies in the market to get a foothold in the market. And they may not have made a you know big financial hit off of that one buy, but they got their foot in the door here, and then they've been able to grow the business from there. But the, the key to successful acquisition uh, from a buyer standpoint is you've got to have a team, again, an, an integration team that is going to take this business and is going to, to bring it into your existing business. Culture is always an issue, and, you, uh, and it's really hard to, to, to take one culture and keep it and bring it into another culture, it never works. You know, one of those cultures is going to win. It's usually the buyer, almost always the buyer. And so you just got to kind of go into it with that idea. But if you have a team that knows how to make that happen, 
uh, then you can have a, a much more successful acquisition. But make no, no mistake about it, that's probably the hardest part of an acquisition. You know, what, what I do in terms of bringing the parties together, getting the documentation done, closing the deal, um, as difficult and as uh, demanding as that is, in some ways it's the easiest part. The hardest part is the integration that happens after the deal closes. Right. That's really when the work starts. I think um, you, you really need to have the integration plan set uh, bef long before you actually close the transaction so you know exactly what happens day one and day 30 and day 60. And you're never, it's not going to happen exactly the way you plan it, but you need to have that plan and you need to have certain objectives and certain timelines. Uh, and as Reese mentioned, culture is very, very important in uh, keeping the right people and the people that can foster the culture of what you bought because uh, obviously you don't want, if you're buying a nice business from a buyer's perspective, you want to maintain that business. Hmm. And uh, you want to make sure you're retaining the uh, the people in that culture. Do you have any recommendations, having seen these deals and seen them, you know, years after, for how to get the culture integration right? I mean, what, what I would say again is uh, you have to have an, a recognition that you can only have one culture. At least that's my, my experience. And that culture is likely to be the buyer's culture. And so, I mean, w one of the challenges that you have with acquisitions many times, and, you know, people talk about people losing their jobs in acquisitions and all that. A lot of times it's just a cultural inconsistency. You know, this person just does not fit in that culture. And uh, so, uh, you know, sometimes people end up leaving just because there's a, as a cultural issue. It's not a performance issue outside of that. So, as Andy said, if you have, a, you know, the really good buyers, they have their team. They know how to go in and communicate. Uh, get these people in, train them, train them in the new culture, get them integrated into that new culture, and really get them to be to perform if they can in that culture. Uh, but if you uh, if if you go in with the idea, oh, we're just going to leave this thing alone and we're just going to let it happen, it, that that does not work. No, and that's that's probably uh, lends itself to the perception that most M and A deals fail is that a lot of people end up leaving of the of the mm -hmm. target end up leaving after a transaction is done. And the former business owner or the general market environment might perceive that as a failure because half the people left after the deal happened. Well, that may be exactly what the buyer wants. So it may not be a failure in their eyes. Great. Let me turn the conversation to your work together. Um, because on the show, I always have folks who work together um, and support each other in business. So would you guys love to give an example of a, um, a deal that you've worked on recently that um, where, you know, the culture you know, you guys did the integration and, you know, it was a particularly interesting, interesting transaction. Well, well, the good news about what we do. And so, so I'm an M&A lawyer. Right. So, so my job is to, to work with a business owner, uh, take them through the entire M&A process, at least up until the sale. And then I say, hi, oh, silver away, leave my silver bullet and ride off to the next deal. Uh, Andy um, is both on the investment banking and the private equity side. So he has kind of two perspectives on it. Um, but again, the good news for me is that I don't have to do the integration. And, uh, you know, one of the things I try to do is make sure that, that an integration plan is in place before I say hi, silver away. Uh, but, <laughs> but it's, it's basically that my job is done. And so, uh, uh, in, in terms of, of working together, I mean, I'd really enjoy working with Andy. I mean, he's just a consummate professional, uh, is tremendously good at the wholesale process. And, uh, in terms of what investment bankers do, I mean, their job is to, if you're doing an outright sale, is to get the best deal for the owner. And uh, they do a, a great job of taking a company, uh, helping to describe the company very accurately, emphasize the strengths, 
maybe uh, try to explain some of the weaknesses. And then the thing that they do better than anybody is they know who the buyers are. Uh, so they're not starting from scratch trying to figure out who might buy this business. Um, usually, if you're dealing with an investment banker who's active in your industry, when you sit down with them and have that lunch, again, that, that best investment you'll ever make, um, they will know with very shortly who the likely buyers are for your business. They may not tell you that at that meeting, <laughs> but, but they have a very clear idea who they are and what they're going to pay because that's what they do every day. And that's why you hire somebody like that. Again, it goes back to hire the best talent. And, uh, and you know, whatever, whatever you're doing, and in particularly in an M&A deal, get the best talent. Make sure you have the best M&A lawyer. Make sure you have the best investment banker. Make sure you have a very strong financial advisor that's there with you and also an accountant that knows M&A. And if you have that team working together, uh, they can do amazing things for a business and for a sale and, uh, and, and make sure the owner comes out with the best deal. That's right. Yeah, the deal team is important. And to add to that, the... Um Advisors that focus on your deal market, your size, and uh, advisors uh, that focus on the middle market are more focused on those types of businesses, what attributes are important. They're more experienced in selling those types of businesses and documenting those types of businesses in that process, uh, as opposed to somebody that might be focused on much larger transactions. So having a firm that's focused on your deal market is important as well. I think there's there's uh, one transaction recently where it wasn't recent, but it was uh, you know several years ago that it was a company that had all the attributes that we talked about earlier that you don't want. Um, they had lost a big customer. Um, the business had been flat for five years, had not seen any growth. The uh, end use market was building products, which had not seen any significant growth. Uh, they had a ninety percent customer concentration. So all their business was coming from one big uh, place. Right. They had. Um, they had a business owner who wanted to uh, get all cash and leave the day of closing. Um, he had no management team underneath him, had a, a CFO, but that's about it. So all the attributes that you don't want. This, so, is, this is Andy thanking me for this referral. <laughs> yes. yeah. Thanks, you know, Reese. Yeah. You know who he's talking about? Yeah, yeah. 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 Thank you for referring this business uh, to me, Reese. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. But at the end of the day, <laughs> the business uh, was would was very interesting to a small group of strategic buyers. And it was all about how the value was communicated to those buyers because the reason each one would want to own it was different. So the approach and the message had to be customized for every buyer. And so, Andy, you're saying that you can sell ice to Eskimos? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, in this, in, this, in this particular case, yeah, the, the business uh, had a product that uh, had not seen a lot of growth, but it was a very niche product. And the buyers were large strategic buyers that saw the ability to take that product and put it through their own distribution channels and significantly grow the business. And they paid a premium for the business. The business traded for over nine times EBITDA, which is not typical for a flat uh, business with a high customer concentration. But it and a business that. owner and no management team. And, and the business owner left the day or the day after closing and moved to South America somewhere. So he got his wish, all cash deal, and left town. And uh, there was a buyer that was willing to buy that business because it had a strategic fit with, with their, with their uh, objectives. Now, that's not the case all the time. But the importance in that deal is identifying the right buyers, being very targeted, and being effective in articulating to those buyers why they should have an interest and why they should pay a premium for that business. Mm -hmm. and, and so as you, you, know, you think about advising business owners who are thinking about these things and you know, they're listening and they're saying, okay, you know, where am I in, on each of these these different metrics and, you know, they'll 
call in, call an investment banker, maybe Andy, and take him out to out to lunch. Um, I had asked before how long it takes to think to to fix these things. Um, so somebody who's just in the beginning of this process, what do they need to really start to emotionally get themselves ready for? Well, in terms of, the, of how long it takes, uh, the answer is zero to infinity. Uh, some people never fix these problems. Uh, and, and some people just are very happy doing what they're doing and just keep doing that. And their exit plan is to die at their desk. I mean, and, and seriously. I mean, that's you see a lot of business owners like that. The, the business owners that we typically deal with are folks that have vision and understand what their goals are and where they want to get to. And, and a lot of it is just understanding what are the things they need to be doing. And I think once they, they understand what it is they're, they're, they're supposed to be doing, most of these folks, most business owners, most entrepreneurs are very good fixers. They're problem solvers. So a lot of times they just don't know they have a problem because everything's kind of running along just fine or they're so busy every day that they don't realize it. But it's having the ability to step back from the day-to-day and being strategic about your business and being able to identify what are those problem areas. And I think once they identify the problem, then you use the same kind of energy you did starting your business to solve each of these problems. And so in terms of bringing on a management team, that is a multi-year process. Uh, But you start it today. And you go hire the best headhunter you can find. Again, it's talent. Go don't hire somebody that you know or your buddy or somebody who's a buddy of a buddy. Go get a headhunter who knows how to find the best talent and go hire the best talent. Start building that team. You can start today tracking your your EBITDA. You can tracking your your revenue, tracking your re, your revenue uh, concentration. If you don't have somebody in your company right now that can do that for you, you got a problem. You may want to go get a fractional person to come in and you know a couple of times a month to help give you the metrics that you need to, to, to get. But again, it's identify the problem areas, identify the things you don't have, and start focusing your energies on those things. Right. And then in terms of, of building new revenue streams and new new channels of distribution, um, you don't have to have developed those uh, to a significant degree. You just have to show that you've invested in the effort, you've got the people on board, and that you are making traction in that new market. So from a buyer's perspective, a buyer will see value in the fact that you are having traction in a new market as opposed to you've achieved a certain revenue threshold. So as as Reese was saying, the the key is to get started on these initiatives because they vary. Uh, Obviously, putting in an IT system, you can can do that pretty quickly um, and effectively if you have the right support and you can put a timeline on that. Finding a person, you can somewhat put a timeline on it, but again, you got to find the right person, so you don't want to rush that. So the the key is to just get started on those things, get moving. And, and Andy's earlier point, your company does not have to be perfect to sell it, so so don't worry about that. Uh, but you do have to be able to show either that you fix these problems, or at least that you know the problem is there and you have a strategy for for addressing it, um, because that's what buyers are looking for. They're looking for a business that that knows itself and knows what it's good at and what it's not good at and is working to fix those those problems. Hmm. Uh, One of the things that I think um, is behind all of these things is that emotional behavior component, which we've touched on in a couple different places in the conversation. Tell me about how the, the psychology or the emotions of a CEO affect your work and your your ability. I see you laughing. Your ability to to get the best value and get the best deal for for these CEOs. Well, I mentioned before. I mean, this is their baby. 
I mean, and, and you know, I, I deal a lot with entrepreneurs who started the business from scratch. They've hired every person that's in that business. They literally are like family to them. I've kind of grown up with them. They've seen them grow up. They know their kids. They know their grandkids. They know their spouses, all that. And so, uh, and this is their life. This is who their identity is. They're identified as they're the CEO of this business. So it can be very difficult for them to give that up. And uh, again, this goes back to what I was talking about before. Selling your business is not the goal. You have to have something more to motivate you after the sale because otherwise you're going to be sitting there with a big pile of money and not know what the heck to do with it. And so, uh, so that, uh, yes, I've, I've had the call uh, on the eve of closing. I've, I don't know if I want to do this. And, uh, Which and, must make you really happy. You, well, I, I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, what what, what I uh, the response I had to that particular entrepreneur is there are forty two million reasons why you are selling the business tomorrow. <laughs> and he said, "Oh yeah, thanks, uh, thanks for that reminder." And uh, but but it, it is a huge emotional uh, step for them. And Andy uh, deals with this much more uh, hands on uh, in terms of dealing with the entrepreneurs in their sales. Yeah, I mean, you find that a. a a business again is very emotionally attached to a business that you find found and grow as you get involved in a process and start speaking with prospective buyers you pretty quickly figure out the business is not going to continue as it is today I mean, there are going to be changes and often there'll be significant changes and business owners are not always comfortable with that you know they like to protect their employees regardless if they're not the best employees um, they like their you know they like their office space you know they you know, in a lot of cases, if their name is on the door, that's a big deal to them, and, and all that changes. And so you have to deal with the emotions and not just the economics of a deal. And how do you go about doing that? Well, it's really making sure they understand up front, you know, the, what a transaction entails and that they fully understand <coughs> it. And my objective uh, is to make sure a business owner is aware of everything that happens in a process and what is likely to happen to the business after closing to make sure they go in into the process with their eyes open. Yeah, and, and a lot of this depends on who the buyer is, and, and um, you know, but our job really is, as Andy indicated, is to make sure the the seller knows what they're getting into, what that business owner is getting into. If they're selling to a large strategic buyer, uh, and and they they've got a consulting agreement to stay on for six months or a year after that. Uh, you just got to make sure they understand you will not be in charge of this business. You you're, are an employee. You, you, well, no, you're not even that. You're, you're, you're quote, a consultant, <laughs> but, but they want you to consult from afar, usually. Right. Uh, right. They want you to be available to answer questions. Versus if you sell to a private equity group, which, isn't, uh, which doesn't have a huge platform behind it, that is basically a strategic buyer that they've created. If they're just coming into your business and buying your business almost on a standalone basis, then they are going to look to that owner to be active in, in what happens. And Again, a lot of that goes back to the goals. If your goal is, I mean, if you're, you know, 50 and you want to continue to work for another 10 years, uh, selling to a large strategic buyer may not be the best answer for you. It may be better to go with a private equity group that's going to want you to stay around for a period of time and actually continue to run the business. And that may be a fun thing for you to have a new financial partner that takes some of the, the weight off of you, puts some money in the bank, you know, takes some of your chips off the table, but allows you now to, to go out there and hire the management team you want to hire and really drive the business the way you want to drive it. So, Again, it goes back to what's your goal, where are you, and what are you trying to achieve? Right, and it's and I think most of the time with a strategic buyer, uh, they do not want the owner to stick around. And um, they're buying the business to conform it to what they want. Um, they don't need somebody else there that's trying to preserve the past. Um, 
And it's that cult- culture thing again. I mean, the, C- the CEO right. is the culture of that business. All right. And I recently sold a business this past summer, and the, the strategic buyer signed a 90-day consulting agreement with the seller. Uh, the seller did not get one phone call. In 90 days, the agreement expired and went on. And the, the seller's offended a little bit, that thinking, <laughs> gee, they don't. But um, the buyer doesn't want the, the former owner. The buyer wants the business. Hmm. Great. So in the, the last segment, I would love to talk with you about what's happening in your practices. Um, anything new, exciting, you know, books, white papers, talks. Um, let us know a little bit about what's happening with you. Andy, you want to take that one? Uh, well, I think we're just busy executing on transactions right now. The market is, as, as we've been talking about, is pretty hot. Um, the strategic buyer universe is being pretty aggressive. And most of the transactions I'm managing now are companies that are really targeted to strategic buyers, uh, where they require a little bit of a customized approach and a, a, a customized message to the different buyers uh, and a, a more managed, effective kind of a process as opposed to the broad auction processes that people often hear about. So I'm finding that these targeted processes can be a lot more effective for a business owner, particularly if you have a small to middle market business and your buyer universe is very large companies. The, uh, the company I just referred to was a, uh, a software business, uh, $12 million in revenues, uh, and it was sold to a, a large uh, publicly traded company based in Madrid. Um, to at a very nice multiple, at a five times revenues multiple. The, um, the challenge there is when you get a big company like that on the phone to introduce them to an opportunity, you have to very quickly and effectively articulate why they should spend a few minutes on the phone with you. And then you have to convince them why, from a strategic perspective, they should dig in and really understand this business and have an interest. And that's a challenge. Yeah, I think, as, as Andy indicated, everybody in M&A right now is busy. And the reason we're busy is the market's hot. And if you are an owner who is thinking about selling somewhere in the next three to five years, uh, I think we would both strongly encourage you to go at least dip your toe in the water and maybe even just jump headlong into it because we're hot right now. I don't know how long it's going to stay hot. Uh, some say another year, maybe two. But uh, the window will close. And when the window closes... It closes hard usually, and we all uh, go work on our golf game for a year or two, and then we come back and, and do deals again. So, uh, but it's a it's a wide variety of things in terms of what you know. The things that really get my juices flowing are things that would put people to sleep. I mean, we're talking about indemnification and reps and warranty <laughs> insurance and all those kind of things. Oh, it's been that fascinating that they did that. No, it's really not fascinating. You know, but you know, our, but again, the fascinating part is is that we're really busy right now, and uh, you know, on, on my. Uh, tote right now. I've got five sell-side deals that are active, and so um, and and more in the pipeline, hopefully. So so this is this is the time to do it if you're thinking about selling. Great. Well, thank you so much for um, spending the morning with me. Uh, if you, folks want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Well, I'm easy. You just go on the web and put in R H Y S Wilson, and and you'll find me. Very yeah. good. And you're at Nelson Mullins. Correct. And Andy. And you can find me at PelotonCapitalPartners.com. Very good. Thank you so much, guys. Great. Thank you. Thanks. This show is brought to you by Anona Enterprises, where strategy is your access to money and performance. Learn more at AnonaEnterprises.com.